Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are doing the second half of 2 Kings, chapters 17 through 25 today. And I have another guest with me today. Last week, I had Jeff Goddard. And this week, I have the illustrious Tom Bogle here with me. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Ben. How are you? Good. Glad you're here with me to discuss this this week, Tom. Tom, you have been a longtime editor, at least for a period of time with the the podcast. You've been involved with the Peace Studies group. You've even recorded a podcast over on the Contemplation podcast. So you've been around just kind of lurking in the shadows. Some, (laughs) some, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I do best, some would say. Yeah, no, I've, I've been a longtime listener of, of the podcast, been following and contributing where I can to the Latter-day Peace Studies podcasts and just kind of media research and, and things of that nature for as long as I can. So I'm just, I'm glad to be here. I got to be real honest, I'm not a scholar. I like to study, but I don't think that classifies me as a biblical scholar at all. But I'm, I'm excited to be here and excited to join the conversation. Well, you know, Christopher and I have to throw that disclaimer out all the time. We are not biblical scholars. We just want to learn. The way that we learn is by talking about it. And we figure maybe if we talk about it and other people hear us talk about it, maybe they'll learn to be more wise than we are to steal a phrase from Mormon, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, again, I'm, I'm very excited to have you here with me, Tom. We, we've kind of passed each other on Facebook for years, and I don't know that we've ever just like talked directly to each other before. Just before we started recording, we were talking about and realized we, we have a lot in common, you know, come from families we have the that same hometown the same place yeah same hometown like that that was crazy so i mean i guess it's not like this far-flung you know coincidence within mormondom right you know like there's there's connections but anyway for sure for sure <laughs> all right so let's get into second kings 17 through 25 today this is covering a historical period around 750 BC to 500 BC. Now, that may come as an oddity to people. I very rarely, if ever, spit out dates for Bible stuff because a lot of the things we've talked about up until this point, we have not been able to squarely or firmly place within an actual historical dated Content, you know, they're just kind of vague, ambiguous about when certain things happen. Now we're starting in to get into an ancient record that is corroborated with a lot of other records, Babylonian and Persian and Assyrian and Egyptian records that corroborate a lot of this stuff. And so we can really pinpoint dates better than we ever could before. This is, as you might notice, the world, this is the time period of Lehi and Nephi from the Book of Mormon, okay? So we'll get into a little bit about what this might help us understand, context of the Book of Mormon. There's a little bit to sort of discuss there on that topic. 
But keep in mind as we go through this, that this would be the world that Lehi's family comes from. This is right around the time of the founding of Rome. You know, I think there were 753 BC or something like that. So, you know, this is starting to be well-documented historical time period uh, as we move forward. And just to, to jump on this a little bit, that doesn't necessarily remove a lot of the historical ambiguity of dates and, and times. Sure. <laughs> You'll sometimes see things that are recorded out of order or they're recorded in a, a particular order for the context of the story that's being told. But like you said, now we have multiple historical accounts so we can get a general time frame, even if things don't line up perfectly. Right. Yeah. Good point. So this is the time in which both Israel, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are going to be going into exile. So we'll be talking about exile today, not the time period of exile, but them going into exile. Next time, you know what? Not even next time so much. We'll talk a little bit about exile next time, but we're not going to get to a lot of discussion about exile until probably Esther. And then it's going to be until like Jeremiah and Isaiah, I think, before we talk much more about the actual exile period, just because we're, again, we're reaching the end of the kingship of Israel and Judah. And then a lot of the stuff that happens from here on out, there's some history that happens with them returning from exile. But then a lot of books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Lamentations and everything, these take place within this time period that we're talking about. And so there's less, a little bit less history moving us forward than there is a commentary contemporary commentary from the time in the form of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Lamentations and so forth. Which actually makes this a little bit difficult to understand because since, especially the books of Kings and, and Chronicles, here are these events that tell you specific dates and times and locations and people, then you want to start thinking about the scriptures in that way. But the subsequent books that follow aren't delivered to you in that way. It's little snippets that are covering overlapping storylines, overlapping timelines, but they're being told by different perspectives, by different authors, from different groups of people. And so you, you just have to keep that in mind as you go through and read the rest of that, like you said, contemporary commentary, because you think, oh, well, now I'm, I'm going through this storyline. And you're not. You're not going right. through it in a chronological <laughs> storyline. Right. Yeah. This is where the chronology starts hitting some bumps and time warps and, and so forth. So Ooh, that, yeah. that always oh, yeah. threw me off about the Old Testament. And a little embarrassed to say that I'm actually kind of figuring that out here within the past couple months. <laughs> <laughs> how the actual timeline of, of the books works in the Old Testament. I, I was kind of oblivious to that fact before. I just kind of looked at them, at them as books of scripture. I wasn't able to sort of place them in a timeline all that well, except for some of the stories. Whereas, you know, you look at the Book of Mormon and it's just like much more organized in the way that it's laid out of this this history. Obviously, we have the Book of Ether thrown in there, but it's just, you know, a different organization of scripture than, than we have with the Old Testament. So yeah, yeah, very much. So here, as we get into the discussion of the exiles of Israel and Judah, we have one overarching reason that's given for these exiles happening. There's some other other reasons that are given later on or sort of subtext or in other books of the scripture, but there is one overarching reason. And the reason that's given in the text is essentially that they didn't worship the Lord. Or at least not in the way that the Lord asked them right. to, right? Yeah, yeah. Didn't worship in the prescribed way. And this is the Deuteronomistic history. 
the writers that are that are giving this. That means that they are looking in an exi- in exilic or post-exilic sort of hindsight at all of these events and commenting on them in a particular theological context and saying this is why this happened and they're they're weaving this narrative about why things happened the way that they did and again the reason they're giving is that the Lord or God of Israel allowed or prescribed that they be taken into exile because of their incorrect worship practices, whether they were worshiping other gods or not worshiping the Lord in, in the right way. And that's that's the key of that. What what we want to say about this, or I say what I want to say about this is <laughs> is we've talked about this previously, this type of reasoning. It really, from my perspective, is a pretty sloppy or a bad theology to present God this way, because in my estimation, it views God as pretty vindictive or capricious. This view is even contradicted in the text at times when God will save them, even when they don't deserve it, right? And so- So many times. So many times. Yeah, it seems to present God as like, you have no way of predicting how God is going to act. And this seems to flow counter to the whole covenant narrative, right? That like- If you have a covenant with God, then you should know where you stand with him and you should be able to know what's going to happen. He's going to protect you. And so there are these competing mindsets in the scripture that obviously there's attempts to reconcile them. But when you really look at the text, there's really a competition between the mindset of you know, God will always protect you if you're righteous. And even if you're not, he will still deliver you at times. And then there's the competing mindset, which is essentially, you know, even the tiniest slip up and you're in trouble with God. And there's really, you never really know whether you're square with God or not. And Ben, I think we do this in our own day. Like we do this today. Any good thing that we have in our life, we go, oh, that's the hand of the Lord in my life. I see it right now. And what happens then is we get this this conflicting idea is what about people who don't have those same good things in their life. They're living the covenant. They're doing all these things, but maybe their spouse wasn't miraculously saved in that car accident. Does that mean that God somehow abandoned or forgot about? I don't think so. And that's where I think it comes to this idea that that really is kind of a, a sloppy theology, but it's something that we default to because it makes us feel good. It's an easy way to explain Things, right, 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 and you, you're right. You know, we here I am trying to, you know, poo-poo the the ancient uh, primitive mindset, right? And it's not really an ancient primitive mindset. It's just very human, <laughs> right? But the first step I think is recognizing that and realizing that, hey, this is not this is not really the God we want to believe in, right? It's just kind of what our default mindset is, or or I'm not I'm not sure what to call it. You know, maybe this is sort of a, a shadow of ourselves that kind of pushes this narrative. Well, there's a story from the text that you and I both have in our notes that I think demonstrates this really well. And it's it's in a second king oh 17. And it's in like the end of the chapter versus like 24. 25 through 28, I think. And it's the story of, you know, hey, these new people moved into the land. They were assigned to be there by the king, but they weren't familiar with the Lord and the way of worshiping the Lord. And so clearly the Lord sends these lions to go in and kill a bunch of people until they say, oh, we'll send one of the local priests.
priests back and, and the local priest will tell them how to worship the Lord. And then they'll do this. They're not going to give up their old customs, but by learning how to worship the Lord, these lions go away. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm reading this story and I know you've got some other thoughts on this particular story, but I'm reading this going, I don't know that the Lord himself had anything to do with the lions other than he created them and, and put them in this habitat where the people are living. There's likely other culture or other customs that they were involved with that were part of their daily customs that the people had connected with some type of religious ritual. And because they've connected it with this religious ritual and it keeps the lions away, like maybe, okay, well, hey, when you make your offerings, burn them all and don't just throw the excess out in the backyard Okay, well, yeah, because when you do that, it attracts lions, and now there's mm-hmm. lions all around. So it, something along those lines, sure, where it's so easy for us to say, ah, it was the Lord that did this, when in reality, there, there might be, and and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to downplay when people see the hand of the Lord in their life. What I I hope we can discuss is. The Lord is there with you in the good and the bad. He's there with you when things are seemingly going right and when things seem to be going wrong and and change our mindset about that and how we interact with God in those moments. Like it, it's almost like prosperity gospel. Oh yeah, right? prosperity gospel, sure. When things are going well, it's because I followed the Lord and when things are going well or or when things are going wrong, it's because I wasn't. It's just kind of lazy. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about this is the theological reasons given in the text for this. And I think one of the things to point out here is that 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 ancient mindset, even going to polytheistic cultures, is that whenever something happens, it's God or a God that's making it happen, right? There's not naturalistic explanations for things. There's a God that makes things happen within the world. And so when you start sort of squeezing that into a monolatrous or monotheistic type of worldview for God, then everything then starts becoming the act or result of that single deity, right? Yeah. All good things are God's fault and all bad things are God's punishment. Correct. Because you did something wrong. Yeah. So I mean that again that's like the theological reasoning some of some of the other reasonings that are given in the text uh, later in other books are that these exiles are a test of the people right and and how are they going to respond to this test still others and and I'm excited I think Christopher is is really looking forward to recording on the book of Job <laughs> he's only been excited since Genesis <laughs> yeah <laughs> the book of Job can be viewed as a commentary on this as well and the interesting thing about that is the book of Job is considered one of the oldest if not the oldest bible text that there that we have right? Older than any of the other texts that we have. And yet it's this story that doesn't seem to be placed in any particular timeline or time frame. And there's some really interesting theological stuff into it. Again, you know, I'm going to save that for when we talk about the book of Job. But the the point about the book, one of the points about the book of Job is that it brings up is that sometimes things happen in life for no reason at all. Like, like just bad stuff just happens. And this kind of gets into a more of a philosophical reasoning here is that, you know, Stuff just happens. Life just happens. The question isn't, you know, like, why did it happen? The philosophical question becomes, how do we respond to it? How how do we respond to these, the horrors of reality of life? Right. Well, it, it reminds me of, of the story of Jesus healing the blind man, right? And his disciples mm-hmm. ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
And the Lord's like, why does that have to be our only option here? Maybe he's blind so that the hand of God can be revealed to you right here, right now, as you see him healed at my hand. Yeah, so that's a a philosophical answer with a healthy theological twist that Jesus always did, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then then we have sort of this, what what we could just call the historical reasoning, right? Like if historians looking at this, he's going to say, well, I mean, these people live in what we today call the Shatterbelt. They're at the crossroads of three different continents major ancient civilizations, trade routes. There's all these deserts and the only safe passage is either right along the coast there or through the Fertile Crescent. And so, of course, I mean, people are fighting over these trade routes. And so you're going to have a lot of conquests come through here from time to time. And so the historical reasoning here is, is this isn't God punishing you. It's just the fact of geography. Right. This is just geography, which I guess you could take back to God. If, <laughs> but. Yeah, I say lest we forget, that's how these people came to possess this land. Is God promised them? Here's this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which I never understood until I tried honey flavored Greek yogurt. For the record, <laughs> now I get the appeal. But He tells them, "Hey, here's this awesome place where you're going to go. It's fertile." Everything is in abundance and you're going to go in and you're going to take it and it's going to be yours. I'm going to give it to you. Of course, the king of Assyria wants it. Of course, the Babylonians want it. Listen to how awesome they've made it sound. And God's going to give it to them. I'm going to come and take it too. Of course, they want it. Yeah, I, a good point. You know, the, all of these questions and a whole lot more, right? We're, we're just not even scratching the surface here that deal with this question of exile. These are tied up in the identity of the Jews as a people. And how they wrestle with this question has really defined them over the centuries, the millennia, as a people in exile diaspora, and it even affects politics today where we are right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the world, very, very strongly. So this is a, a narrative that is important to understand and its implications and how these people really imbued identity from this. So positing this as a theological problem sets the stage for the world of the Jews at the time of Jesus. Because remember how how strict they become in their observances and their prescriptions about the laws that they're supposed to obey. And a lot of this, if not all of it, is in response to these theological commentaries from the Deuteronomists about the exile. And saying, hey, the exile was because of all this. That's why we have the Pharisees and Sadducees coming in and being very particular about how things are done. Because if you don't do them right, then God's going to punish us, right? And so that's where a lot of that mindset and push comes from. You know, Ben, I'd never thought of it in that context before, but that explains so much to me. Like you and I, in before we were talking about, before we started recording, we were talking about how it seems like the people of Israel are doing some of the things that previous prophets and patriarchs also did in their discovery and, and worship of the Lord. And this is the way they had been taught to do it, or it had been handed down to them. Like there's, there's reference to, again, and the making of the casting of golden calves, yeah, which is a story that they would have heard about the Exodus, right? Now, sure, maybe they're misinterpreting it or they're they're missing a part of it, and like where God says, "Hey, don't do this thing." But also, if they're listening to these stories that are being 
handed down as as oral traditions, they understand what we've talked or what you guys have talked about on this podcast so many times that the original golden calf wasn't supposed to be some other god. It was supposed to be their representation of Yahweh. Now they're kind of mimicking some of these things, but even in these slight variations, they're missing the mark, right? And so I had never thought that that is why in the time of Christ, why the Mosaic law gets so strict, why it's so detailed, why it's so nitpicky, or at least why it feels that way. Well, man, if I had gone through this and my whole identity as an Israelite was built around this, I would be right there with them. Right. I'd be so afraid of making a mistake and then losing everything, all of this, the blessings of the covenant that had been promised to us, gone. Man, I'd be so afraid. It definitely helps us see that mindset more clearly and step away from the tendency to just be like, oh, these ridiculous Pharisees, you know, why are they feeling this way? And look, there's a lot of baggage here, right? Like there's a lot of reasons this is going on. And then you just look to yourself and realize like how much we get nitpicky about that type of stuff within a tradition. A tradition doesn't have to (laughs) go on for very long for it to start piling up all kinds of fences around the law, right? So. Oh my goodness. Like, like, First of all, I'm a little bit angry at you that you've made me now sympathetic to the cause of the Pharisees. <laughs> but also, like, we again, this is another thing that we see where people get nitpicky, not even about the law, but about the cultures and customs that are derivative from the law. And we enforce those things as though they are the law. And we do this today, right? We do this yeah. with young men having sleeves rolled up to pass the sacrament kind of yeah. stuff, right? right? Yeah. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and and now that. I'm sympathetic to their cause. Goodness. <laughs> so I'm going to jump into some of the te- actual text here and, and get some commentary on it. We talked about the reasons given for the exile. I want to actually read some of the verses that summarize this very well so we can kind of get an idea. Now, now, this reasoning in chapter 17 goes on and on for many verses, and then it repeats itself in chapter 18. It seems obvious here we're talking about two different sources, right, that are put together. Right, right. But in chapter 17, we get the long form of the, the criticism here. So I'm going to start in verse 5, go through 7 of chapter 17. I'm reading from NRSV. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Hala, on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had worshipped other gods. That's the long and short of it there. Mm-hmm. The reason mm-hmm. for the exile given here in the text. And this this is hammered away and, and repeated. This is first for Israel. Same kind of reasons are given for Judah. Now, Tom, you referenced some verses here later in the chapter where there's this plague of lions that comes in to the people that inhabit the land. So like, Assyrians bring in some other people that inhabit the land and they're like, oh, we can't deal with these lions. And their reasoning is, well, it's because we aren't worshiping the gods of this land. If we would worship the gods of this land, then we'd be able to handle the land, right? From from a what we might call a primitive religious theological perspective, that's like so you know, it seems off. But then we step back a second. We say, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. Like, if you don't understand the climate and uh, ecology of a land 
and like how you're supposed to live in it and things you can and can't do, even little things, then of course you're going to have problems, right? I mean, you mentioned a, a thing. I didn't even think about it. You know, instead of burning the meat, you leave it out. Of course, it's going to attract lions. You know, that's, that was purely that's like, speculative, yeah, by the way. Purely speculative. But yeah, yeah, don't take that as like, you know, authoritative. But the idea here being that, yes, if you don't understand exactly the wildlife and the balance and the climate of an e- ecology of, of an area, you won't know how to grow your crops and, you know, and so forth. And so that's sort of like on the practical end. But again, for this ancient mindset, they view this as, well, we aren't sacrificing to the right deity. Right. But really, it's the same concept, right? You know, you're not, you're not sacrificing to the right deities. You're not managing your ecosystem correctly in order to, to bring about the crops. And so what do they do? Well, they they import some priests that can do the right sacrifices for the right gods, and that takes care of, of the lion problem, right? Very interesting. And and this just, just really hits home the idea here that this ancient mindset is that gods are tied to geographic locations, okay? So there's four different theisms I kind of want to talk about here. And the first is that people are familiar with is polytheism. And this would be the belief in the existence of many gods and also the worshiping of more than one god. Then we get something that's called henotheism. And henotheism, it is that there are many gods, but you only worship one of them. However, in that worshiping of the one, you do allow that other people worship other gods. So there's a type of sort of just liberty going on here, right, within henotheism. You you allow everybody to kind of worship the, the god that they want, but you only worship one god. This, this feels to me kind of like, and I could be getting some of my history wrong, but where in some of the ancient city-states of like Greece and Rome, there was kind of like a patron god of this community that was part of a pantheon of gods. But if you were in this city, this was the god that you worshipped, knowing full well that others in other cities would have their own deities that they would pay homage to. But you were kind of stuck with this one because you were from this specific geographic area. Does that kind of fit that bill? Yeah, that's along some of the lines. I think that geography is even a little more tied to here in the land of Canaan than maybe a Greek. Now, when you go and you look at some of the the Greek sources and and Herodotus and stuff, a lot of times you'll get statements about, oh, the god of of this city or the god of this city or or but but the Greeks kind of viewed it as like there's a certain set of gods and there's other people and they worship the same gods, they maybe just call it something different. So the Greeks kind gotcha. of okay. had this concept of that there were a certain you know number of gods, but that people called them different things. And I guess there would be occasion where like there would be a god that they don't worship that somebody else worships. But that was still the type of, of polytheism, and there was some allowance for, for other worshiping going on. What we've talked about a lot here is monolatry, and monolatry really starts coming into play here, especially in the books of First and Second Kings, because monolatry, again, is a subset of henotheism, where you believe that there are many gods, you worship only one of them, but you're intolerant of worship of other gods. 
Okay, that's what's going on with these kings when we get Hezekiah and Josiah in particular in these chapters we're going to talk about. They destroy all other worship practices of all these other gods, and there's only one. You know, you can only worship the God of Israel. And it's not just acknowledging there's others. Oh, if you want to worship, you can. No, it's not allowed within this land. And again, there's some geography going on here. You're acknowledging that other gods exist. You're acknowledging that gods in other lands exist. But the God of this land, there's only one. And so if you're in this land, you have to worship that God. And so that's where this this crackdown on the other worship and religious practices really comes into play. And we see this pretty explicitly right here in in chapter 17, right after the story of the lions, where they go through and list, here's all these different people that came into these different cities from Assyria or from different parts of Assyria. And these are the names of the gods that they worshipped. And then down in in 32, or actually I'm going to jump to 33, it says, so they worshipped the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Right? So this is, hey, we're going to do your local customs. We're going to worship your gods so that we don't get eaten by, by lions. But really, we're sticking with our own gods that we brought from our own communities as well, because that's what we really believe. We're doing your local customs, you know, for fear of paying a price, but not because we actually honor and respect, you know, your, your God, but because you're kind of telling us that we have to, or there's going to be lions. Yeah. It's a, it's just out of necessity, right? Like, right, right, <laughs> to, right. To do this, not out of necessarily piety, which weren't, weren't always necessarily two things in, in the ancient mindset. The, the last verse in chapter 17 says something interesting. It says, so these nations worship the Lord, but also served their carved images. To this day, their children and their children's children continue to do as their ancestors did. All right, so little note here. This is actually specifically talking about a people that in the New Testament are called the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is very this is an important historical context to then start understanding the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans within the New Testament. The Samaritans are viewed as idolatrous traitors. Okay, by the Jews in Jesus' time, because they are not worshiping in the prescribed manner. And so they're worse than these other nations who have other gods, because they are supposed to be worshiping the God of Israel, but they're doing it in a corrupt way, right? These are apostates. They're not just non-believers. These are apostates. That's why the Samaritans are particularly odious in the New Testament context. And that's an important thing to understand when you, there's other stories, but especially with the story of like the Good Samaritan. Well, and, and they kind of hang on to these traditions and, and reject the ultra-conservative piety of, of the Pharisees. Pharisees, thank you. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they reject that, right? Because they're hanging on to these old ways. And so now that you've changed that context for me of why the Pharisees might be so strict in their observance, I get it. I understand where this conflict comes from between these two people. And that verse right there at the end of 17, that's the key. That explains this whole situation that we're going to see several hundred years later. Right. Yeah. The distinction we've been making here, you know, that the last theism that we would talk about is monotheism, which at this point is really only starting to sort of peak out 
we see statements every once in a while of the God of Israel being the only God, right? But then there's a little bit of a, we see at another point, oh, there are other gods. I should say that when Hezekiah and Josiah, when they destroy these images and stuff, if the images weren't, didn't have any religious power to them, they could just throw them in the trash and it wouldn't matter, right? But they do recognize that there's some religious power here. So they have to burn them. And then like, in it, I think in Josiah, like they don't just burn them. They like have to take them somewhere else and burn them and then cover them with bones like it's this it's this total thing right like what they that they have to do uh, akin to the destroying of the golden calf and pulverizing it and making people drink the gold water right so like there's this stuff that has to happen because there's still this latent recognition that there are in reality other gods but we need to only worship one the type of monotheism that has come to be associated with judaism uh, you know at the time of jesus or, or later and then with with christianity and islam really is is starting to develop and come out at this time but it's not quite fully formed within their their theological understanding well and you can kind of see it through here in that at no point do they say none of these other gods are real they will say these idols are the craftsmanship of the people people's hands. The idols are not real gods. They're saying there's no one like the Lord. There's no other God like him, right? Mm-hmm. And and that goes back to the, the phrasing of the actual commandment as given by God is that you should have no other gods before me, right? Not that no others exist, you know, so you can see kind of how that, that idea right. is starting to morph through right here. An interesting thought on this is one of the idols that Hezekiah destroys is the bronze serpent that had been created by Moses, right? That he holds up on the pillar to, uh-huh. to free the people uh-huh. of Israel from these, these serpents. But now the people have begun to worship the bronze serpent itself. It says they, they burned incense to it or made offerings to it. In the, in the text, it says that they called it Nehushtan. And so I looked up what that meant. And it's essentially the best translation that people can come up with right now is that it's akin to saying it's just a piece of bronze. Oh. <laughs> that he's saying like, this is the craftsmanship of your own hands. Yeah. Sure, yeah. it played an important role in our history, but it's just a piece of metal. It's not your God. It's just a piece of paper, Tom. <laughs> Don't get right? me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, these distinctions, you know, some people might be wondering why we're spending all this time on like these these theological. They're important because as we go through the Old Testament, we see shifts. And I say shifts, not necessarily an evolution. I want to avoid the perception that there's like this progression evolution towards monotheism as the most developed form of theism. I'm not saying that at all. These are just different ways of conceptualizing God and, and gods. And there are shifts within the text and within the theology for a lot of reasons. But we we saw evidence that in Genesis, there was a type of polytheism going on. And that's evident right there in the first book of Genesis, when the the pronoun we is used or us is used in the creation, right? right? And in Exodus, we get something akin to henotheism, especially when we're dealing with Egypt and all the gods of Egypt. The idea is, hey, you know, you've got your gods in Egypt and you can worship them. Just let us go out three days into a different land. We can't be in here. We can't be here and worship God because this isn't the land of our God. We have to go to another land and, you know, three days out and we have to worship our God. So it's it's the recognition. We only worship this one, but sure, there's these others and you guys can do that because you're in your own land. But when we get into like the books of Samuel and Kings, we're talking a, a lot more about uh, monolatry here. Monotheism starts becoming more solid after 
or the exile. The kings that we're dealing with here that are described as righteous in the text are monolatrous. They're intolerant of other gods. Religious freedom is not a thing under righteous kings of the Bible. Religious freedom is widely considered a social virtue today, but I think in considering this, we should then allow ourselves to question notions of objective morality being derived from the Bible. Okay, because if we were to just derive from the Bible, we'd be like, okay, well, religious freedom isn't good because all the righteous people destroy all the other religious practices and they kill all the people that do the preachers. So, you know, if we were to derive our morality from that, we would that would make us like, you know, church burners and, and murderers, right? So we can't pull it in that direction. We have to look at something else. And one of the things that I, I was so tempted to talk about is looking at Israel being carried away. First, Israel being split into two kingdoms because of the the kings and all this stuff. And I'm thinking back to Samuel, like they were warned, right? They asked for the king and they were warned that all of this stuff and worse was going to happen. And and for me to say, look, this is reason. This is why they shouldn't have had kings in the first place. And then, of course, I can go to the Book of Mormon where Mosiah is telling me the exact opposite of this. It's like, well, you know, we should have kings if we could do this. And so we're going to go from judges. But the people of Israel were like, no, our system of judges doesn't work. Same kind of thing if you're appealing to the scriptures for some kind of like absolutism with regard to any kind of political yeah. ideology like i'm sorry you've it's not gonna get you where you want to go sure yeah so the theology here is changing somewhat just as it has from time to time to accommodate what i would say is the presence of god remember that back in Exodus and then Leviticus, the concern was for the presence of God. That's why they built the tabernacle so God could be there with them. And then later when we kind of got towards Solomon's temple, there's this dedication of the temple and Solomon kind of lets slip that well, God isn't actually here because the heavens couldn't even contain him. And so really it becomes more of a symbolic presence. God is just symbolically here. He's not really here. And so then what we what we have in the exile is when we get to prophets like, I think it's Ezekiel. Ezekiel conceptualizes of God as a mobile God, right? Like not just the tabernacle God, but God in Ezekiel's visions has wheels. And so he oh, can literally. move around and he can be wherever you are, right? This is an important theology logical development for the people in order to hold on to their identity and their belief in and trust in God. Because if God is really only the God of, of that land, then he can't come with them to Babylon. But then they go to Babylon and they find out, hey, God is here. We feel God here. And so they have to change their conception of and theology to realize that, that God really is with us even in our exile. And that's a very important theological development for the identity of these people. It reminds me very much of some conversations that I've listened to you and Shiloh share about the very nature of what it means to be a promised land and a journey to the promised land. That We're going to this place because this is where we're going to connect with God. But it requires us to go to a specific location when the reality is not that it has to be a specific location. For many of these people, the idea was that the journey itself was supposed to be a transformative experience that changes you and puts you in a position where now you can commune with God anywhere you would have been but you've been transformed through this this journey. Where with the people of Israel here, it's not the opposite, but it's actually in their dispersal that they learn, oh, God's everywhere. I don't have to be in this location. I don't necessarily have to journey to the promised land alone to be able to connect with my God. You know, that's a good point. Even in our tradition, we do 
we have the temple, right? Like the temple of their time. And we conceptualize of the temple as the house of God. That's what it means. And I even talked to a couple podcasts ago about how we do still kind of have this question within our religious tradition, okay, is God literally present in the temple or symbolically present, right? I think that you could have a very long discussion with people about that concept. So that that kind of comes up within this context. We we've said before, I think when we were talking about DNC that in our tradition, I kind of say sometimes we have the temple to remind us that we don't need the temple. Right. Like in terms of like being able to have the experience that we have in the temple, we can have that experience anywhere. But sometimes we lose that view, that vision, that ability to see. And so Going there and having that place set aside helps kind of reset that view and helps us re-see that. And so it's kind of a kind of a paradoxical relationship, which I love paradoxes. I think that, <laughs> you know, if something's not paradoxical, you know, then, you know, maybe you know, there's not as much truth in it, maybe. <laughs> well, well, let me build on that paradox then, because for a lot of the people in Israel at this time, the temple is the high place and, you know, the place of high holiness or whatever. But one of the things that the people are doing at this time is they're also building altars on other high places. They're putting poles and pillars on these other high places And those are the things that they're being punished for as they get shoved into exile. It's almost as though, hey, I don't have the temple, but I have this other thing that sort of reminds me of the temple. And instead of pointing me towards the temple itself, what it's doing is I've allowed it to take the place of the meaning behind the temple. It's this connection. I've allowed this physical thing to take the place behind, well, you know, it's symbols and and reference. Sure. Yeah, that's always the danger, right? When a right. when a finger's pointing at the moon, the danger is always that we focus on the finger instead of the thing it's pointing at, right? Or or the brass serpent. We start off yeah. making offerings to a brass serpent instead of right. recognizing right. what it's supposed to be pointing us towards. So here in chapter 18, we get to King Hezekiah. He is viewed as a righteous king, and here enters Isaiah, this very prominent prophet that is especially significant within our religious tradition because the Book of Mormon, you know, Nephi, and then later with Jesus is is very, you know, very appreciative of Isaiah. I'm going to mention here, and we'll get to it, I'm sure, when we discuss the Book of Isaiah, that scholars believe there are actually two Isaiahs, and that's not to necessarily say there were two prophets named Isaiah. That's possible. But the idea is that there are probably two authors of the Book of Isaiah. Some of the chapters written or some of the parts written by one and some by another, some maybe pre-exile, some post-exile, but we can see different time periods going on here. This does present some challenges for us when we look at the Book of Mormon, because if the scholars are are after something important here and, and, and meaningful, then one of these Isaiahs is supposed to be post-exilic and Nephi ends up quoting him. So <laughs> it becomes a little <laughs> difficult for us to deal with. Now, you know, there's a lot of di- ways of dealing with that, but sure. But I just think it's a, a interesting to to point out that the Isaiah we're talking about here is probably the quote-unquote original Isaiah or the first Isaiah. And he is giving counsel to Hezekiah and giving him prophecies, telling him not to fear that Assyria can't beat them because the Lord is there to protect them. What I think is interesting in that context is that the first thing Hezekiah then goes and 
does is pays off the Assyrians. Like he takes all the gold out of the temple and he pays them off with a bribe. And it's not clear to me in the text whether that is judged as an appropriate action or not. I think the text right. is very hesitant to criticize Hezekiah because it called him a righteous king. And so I, it's not clear to me whether that is viewed as an acceptable, you know, action or not. Well, two kind of thoughts that are, are related to this is the text all through kind of Kings and the books of Chronicles that I don't think we actually really cover much. Yeah, we're going to, we're not going to explicitly do Chronicles and we'll discuss, we'll discuss some of that probably in the next, sure. next week podcast. So, okay. But one of the things that I find interesting is it continually talks about David as a righteous man, a righteous king, notwithstanding the big story within David's reign is this wicked, awful thing that he's done, and then spends the rest of his life trying to compensate for that or, or trying to make penance for that. So I think that's kind of interesting that they refer to Hezekiah as this righteous man when he may have done some of these other things over here. Same with David, right? Yeah. Well, maybe you know this, but the book of Chronicles does not mention Bathsheba at all. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no. So very it completely different story. ignores her. It's a completely different narrative about David. Never mentions anything he did wrong at all. So, right. Actually, right. no, no, no. I should take that back. It does mention a, a sin that he has, a grievous sin, but it's not about Bathsheba. It's something totally different. I kind of appreciate, and I probably shouldn't, but I kind of appreciate in these chapters and, and kind of all through the book of Kings, because it really starts with like Elijah and then into Elisha and it carries over into Isaiah and some of these other prophets of the time. Man, they are snarky. They have got <laughs> attitude and they, it's not just like, hey, we're going to call out unrighteousness when we see it. Because I think that sometimes calling out unrighteousness when you see it in this way can have a, a counter effect. Uh -huh. it, it doesn't call people to repentance, but they're using this in terms of talking to people who are not at all repentant, right? And, and that's where it, it kind of comes from. What's interesting to me, though, is that this is almost emphasized in the text. They're like, hey, look at these guys. They are, are calling, they're, they're standing strong. And I don't, well, I won't even go this, but it's like, we kind of do that with a lot of politicians today, hmm. right? Is that we value that kind of almost pompousness as straight talk. You know, hey, mm. they're going to they're gonna give it to you straight. And, and I'm not really sure why, but I, I thought that was, that's kind of an interesting theme that I see with the prophets as, as we're going through these, these books anyway. Well, one thing to remember there is that this is what we have written in the text, right? And there's a specific right, right. audience for this text. And so it's going to be written and presented in a way that is at times polemic, right? Because yes. they're, they're trying to present that, that rhetorical, again, polemical argument from the prophet's perspective. If we went back and we're standing right next to him and we understood the language, maybe they didn't say it in that way. Maybe, maybe they did. But again, realizing that the text is written in this way for a specific reason. Also, there is, a, you know, in the ancient mindset, the way that a lot of these political, you know, political and religious were not separate things, right? You know, everything that was religious was political as well. And so a lot of these types of banter that went back and forth was actually very normal for for competing nations to have because they're oh, they're yeah. not just compete their armies aren't just competing their gods are competing right their gods are competing for prominence on the battlefield yeah and you see that very clearly in some of these chapters i need to go and find the reference 
I was kind of laughing that it almost seems like there's one phrase in here, and maybe you remember this verse off the top of your head, where Isaiah essentially says, I'm gonna I'm gonna put him on blast, I think is is actually what he says. I'm like, that's where that phrase comes from. It's from it's from the Bible. Goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to the point of the the propaganda, what we get next, Hezekiah does something to tick off the Assyrians again, and so he the king of Assyria comes back and he's sieging the city and he's talking with the people and he's talking to them in the in Hebrew in in their language and yes. the the people that are there in the city that are talking back to him the magistrates or you know people in charge or whatever they say no 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 don't don't speak Hebrew let's speak Aramaic that's the diplomatic right. language D- because if you don't let the Hebrew, people hear all these other people are going to understand what you're saying you know and but the Assyrian propaganda is pretty good stuff like he goes on and on about things he tells them your god sent me here right i'm here to punish you that this is your god and so he knows it's very interesting that that at least in the, in this propaganda, the Assyrian king understands their mindset and their religion. He he knows his politics, right? And what's interesting is there is an Assyrian source that corroborates this interaction. It does it in a little bit different way. He doesn't invoke their god and everything, which of course in an Assyrian source you wouldn't expect him to, but then in a Hebrew source you would. But it is interesting that this exact interaction is actually corroborated by an Assy- a separate Assyrian source. He even uses something very effective, I would think. And he blames King Hezekiah for destroying the high places of worship. So he tells the people, hey, you know, you think God, your God's going to protect you, but here you have your king. He destroyed all of the places that were worshiping your God. You had built all these high places to worship the God. This is back to the point you were making earlier, Tom, that mm-hmm. they they were doing the same thing, but in these other places. And this king says, well, your king destroyed all those places. So you think this God's going to protect you now? Anyway, it seems like a pretty effective, in my estimation, this would be pretty effective propaganda of the time and then he's even speaking their language so <laughs> well and and like it's, it's mentioned he's doing it because he's not just trying to get the attention of the magistrates and the people who are there meeting him at the gates he's doing it so that the people sitting on the wall can hear right these are the onlookers these are the people of the city he's talking to them kind of circumventing like tradition of hey we're gonna talk diplomat to diplomat no 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 i'm talking to the people and and that's how you know that it's propaganda right it's not negotiation it's propaganda yeah this is ancient psychological warfare and and even if we're reading it out of the biblical text it looks looks to be pretty masterfully crafted you know whoever in the assyrian court like came up with this rhetoric did a very good job i would say <laughs> you well you got to wonder how how does this get so accurately and almost like admirably described in these israelite texts it's like hey this is this is why it was so convincing this is why the people followed is because they were persuaded by these arguments i don't know why why they end up putting it in there at least in terms of it being so effective or so masterfully described, then again, it's kind of akin to in our day, there's tons of people who will go out and collect old Soviet propaganda posters, right? Mm. We know it's propaganda. We admire the propaganda as an art form in and of itself. <laughs> you know, that's that's the Solzhenitsyn quote. They're lying. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying, and yet they still continue to lie. And <laughs> and it becomes like a game. And And so now we look at that as Oh, wow, that's a spectator sport. Yeah. 
So we have some back and forth and some really intricacies to the story here with with Hezekiah and the Assyrians. But suffice it to say that Hezekiah goes to Isaiah and Isaiah tells him, don't fear that the Lord will deliver them. And again, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the story here. Hezekiah even goes to the temple and, and so forth. And then we have this thing where the king of the Assyrians is called back home. He goes back home and then he's killed by his sons. And then the Lord kills all the Assyrians. It's says something like 185,000, which is a, it's exaggerated number. There's sure that's a no way, army there's no the way time. that an army like that size is there. It, the, the point of that exaggerated number, it, it's rhetorical, right? It's saying these Assyrians were extremely powerful and strong. There's no way in any way, shape or form that the kingdom of Judah would have been able to compete with them. This is showing the power of the Lord in delivering them by exaggerating that number. Yeah. So the next thing that we have, so we had a good king, Hezekiah, and then we get an evil king, Manasseh, and Manasseh does everything wrong, right? Like just total opposite of Hezekiah. He builds all the high places again and the, the Asherah, the Asherim, and, and just does everything wrong. So wicked, in fact, that later, even when we get a righteous king, because Josiah, which is said to be the most righteous king since even David, and, and even he does things, you know, better than David in some ways, right? But Manasseh is so evil that we then get this statement, and we'll go, we'll come back to Josiah in a bit, but we get this statement even after Josiah in chapter 23. It says, still the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. Okay, so this goes back to one of the original points we were making at the beginning about the capriciousness of, of this view, this theological view of God, that even though the people had all repented and they'd done all of these things under Josiah, which we'll get to in just a second, it wasn't good enough because they had that evil king Manasseh. This is obviously a hindsight thing. Uh, it right. seems obvious to me that you're going back and you're looking, you're saying, well, we had this great uh, Josiah. So how did all this happen? Oh, well, we had that evil King Manasseh. Then that must have been why, you know, that, that this all happened, notwithstanding all the good things that we did and tried to repent of it. Yeah, I I, I don't have a whole lot that I would add on, on that, but really it does seem like it's like an afterthought. As you're, you see regularly throughout this record, that there's afterthoughts added in. Oh, that explains why this happened. That's yeah. why these people are still doing this kind of stuff. That it's it's not written as a record of that time. It's got commentary. Right. And it, but it references other records of the time that were being kept in, in that time frame. Yeah. And that's a point too. I mean, we have all over in these books references. And in Chronicles, it does this too. It references this chronicle or this book of history of the kings or even books of prophets that we don't know anything about are referenced multiple times. I think in Chronicles, it talks about books of prophets that we know nothing except the name of the prophet because it just said, oh, it's in the book of this prophet. And you're like, well, who's this? And those were some of the scriptures I, I think is in polemical days of missionary work. We would bring up and say, look, you know, we don't have all the things in the Bible. There's stuff missing, right? You know, to the people that would say the Bible's complete and it's everything. There's obviously not everything has survived and all the records that even they were referencing has survived to this to this day. Right. Well, so this is actually something that I learned from a friend of mine who 
considers herself agnostic and in the early days of COVID decided that, hey, I've got nothing better to do. Let's read the Bible. You know, see what all the fuss is about. And as she's reading through this, she's asking, you know, believers questions about the things that she's reading. And she's like, why is it that I keep seeing in the book of Kings and Chronicles, they keep saying, and actually use, this is in 2328, 2 Kings 2328. They're talking about all the acts of Josiah. And actually, I'm I'm in the KJV right now, but he says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So there's these other books that are, be, that are being kept contemporarily, but it doesn't necessarily line up with the book that we have that we call the book, you know, chronicles. No, this is a different book. It's not chronicles. Right. Yeah. The, some of those were used as sources for chronicles, but chronicles is a a Deuteronomist source that's post-exilic looking back. And so, yeah, we have over and over all of these, we have these annals or these chronicles of kings that that they kept that are used as sources here that we don't have access to anymore. We don't have those sources. We just have these texts that pull from them. But, but I wanted to touch on this just a little bit, and I won't spend too much time on this, but I think it's interesting because it gives us a little bit of cultural insight like we said, this is the the culture and the time frame of Lehi's family and their exodus from from Jerusalem. That it's important for the kings of Israel, it's important for the the political leaders of the land to keep records of their families. And and we do see this, you know, in, as we go through chronicles, it tells the genealogy of. Now it's pulling on the source material, right? But it's telling the genealogy. And so when Nephi gets the plates and he's you know, why is it so important? What's in it? Well, because it tells the genealogy of my fathers. Right. Yeah, but it's it's also important because that's how Laban shows his authorization to be this whatever political leader he is of this little kingdom, this community, whatever. It, it's how he, it's his pedigree. His, right. Yeah. It's his pedigree. It's his claim to authority. But what I also think is interesting, because we don't see this right away in the Book of Mormon, but it shows up later on. But we're seeing the evidence of this right here is the keeping of multiple tracks of records. Yeah, we talked about how the political and the religious aren't entirely separated, but they're still, hey, we're going to keep just a record of the things that happened, the wars and the people and their contentions, but we're also going to keep a record of the Lord's affairs with his people. There's a ton of overlap, but you see this theme come up again in the Book of Mormon much, much later on down the road. And, and we're seeing the fruit of it right here in the biblical text. It's this the same kind of mindset that's causing both of these things to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't made to that that connection before. Yeah, that's well, good. I, I hadn't either until my agnostic friend <laughs> pointed it out to me. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so Josiah, very important king, and we're not going to near give him his due here. But no, no. <laughs> Josiah is a very important king. He becomes king at eight years old. And I think that's part of the, the thing here, because as you would guess, an eight-year-old is very impressionable. And so even though he's king, who's really ruling? Well, the people that are ruling are the, the chief priests, his his you know counselors, and all the people that are around him as an aristocracy, as an oligarchy. They're the ones that are ruling. And so they're able to have Josiah sort of go in a prescribed direction. And this is a, a very priestly direction, right? You centralize temple worship and everything has to be at the temple. None of this high place sacrifice, none of these ashadim can happen. And so what we get is that for the very first time in all of the the history of Judah, all of the high places are destroyed. I, I think 
Actually, I think maybe Hezekiah did some of that too, but Josiah goes and destroys all of this, right? Destroys all these places of worship. This is one of the things we alluded to when we talked about the book of Deuteronomy. And that's because the book of Deuteronomy, as we have in its current form, was largely written at the time of Josiah. Okay. And this is probably, this is probably, or at least a form of the book of Deuteronomy is probably what is said in the text as being the book that they found in the temple when they were repairing or, or cleaning out the temple. They come and they say, we found this book. And lo and behold, this book says all the things that we want to do. Like it's word for word, <laughs> everything exactly the way we want it. Josiah, what are the chances, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, so the readers do are and, and guess what? It's even from Moses himself. These are Moses's words and Deuteronomy means the second law. And so it becomes, whereas before you had the four books of Moses, it becomes the fifth, right? And becomes almost as authoritative, becomes part of those five books of Moses, almost as authoritative as the previous four. And lo and behold, again, it says all of the things, the religious reforms, they want the centralization of the temple worship, and it's spoken of right out of the mouth of Moses. So this is what we should do. And I I like that you pointed out that Deuteronomy means the second law. As I first learned that, I'm like, it's not a second law, though. It's a second chance to get the law right. Hmm. And now that you've made me sympathetic to the cause of the Pharisees, (laughs) like now I like that makes so much more sense. Okay, we we had the law the first time and man, we messed that up. But here's our chance to get it right a second time. God's giving us a second chance. We cannot mess this up. We have to do this to the letter. We have to do this with such vigilance, like I almost feel like I'm a missionary again. We have to just stick to the law. So I think that's an interesting idea that that's where the book of Deuteronomy in its current context comes from and and the role that it plays in shaping kind of the rest of Jewish history. It does. The methods that Josiah has to undertake in order to make all of these reforms happen, we would call draconian, right? Like he has to go in and, and kill a bunch of people and burn their stuff down and and not just burn it like he has to carry it out and burn it and then cover it you know in, in bone ashes and like it's it's intense the stuff goes on here one of the things that that's interesting that happens here after he gets the book of Deuteronomy and he and he reads it he consults a prophetess right Holda and this prophetess tells him what how to interpret the book so to speak right like what to do about this because he's like we haven't been doing any of this correctly and so he asks his priests and his priests go talk to a prophetess and then the prophetess tells them you know you have to follow all of this this can be looked at with a very large degree of cynicism right so like you know my my cynicism here for for how it's telling the story maybe is is coming out a little thick but th- this is a very important development of the theology because this marks the point in which that monotheism and that centralization of the temple worship really starts to solidify more. And I think it gives a, a backdrop to, again, the world of Lehi and Nephi and what what might have been going on with them and, and their theological understandings, Lehi's visions, Nephi's visions of the tree and stuff like that. And we discussed this when we, when we talked about the book of Deuteronomy. So, Yeah, yeah. So uh, we did talk about verses 20, verse 26, showing the inconsistency of God, because, you know, it's talking about how even though Josiah did all these great things, 
the Lord still is going to destroy them. You know, sorry, Josiah, it was too little too late (laughs) or something like that. Right. And so Babylon comes in and initially they don't like completely destroy everything. Right. They, they take Judah as a tributary state and exact taxes, tributary from them, tribute from them. But what happens is the Kings of Judah will rebel. Then Babylon will have to come in and get increasingly, you know, come down increasingly harder upon uh, Jerusalem until what you end up having happen is they they take the king into exile yeah. along with a huge part of what we might call the upper class and they set up Zedekiah in his place okay and then here enters the record of Nephi he says in the first year of the reign of of king Zedekiah so at this point like as as they take all of the ruling class away they leave all the working class behind Right. They, they leave all the yeah. craftsmen, they leave all the laborers and they leave them behind because this is not necessarily about just destroying everything that is there. This isn't a mass genocide. This is we just want all the wealth. We want right. all of this stuff. You know, you have to stay productive in order for us to be able to benefit from this at all. One of the questions that, that came up for me in this context is is if they did that, I mean, again, looking at like a Book of Mormon narrative, Lehi is ostensibly a very wealthy person within the right. Book of Mormon. And so why wouldn't he have been taken into exile with all the upper class? It's not it's not really clear to me why that would be the case. An answer to that would be could possibly be well the text you know is making stuff up <laughs> which which is not new right you know like maybe they didn't really take everybody into exile or lehi was able to to hide his wealth somehow or something like that you know i think that there's evidence to say that maybe people didn't know how wealthy lehi was something like that right so or or there's also some other like textual inconsistency that might be explained away in a number of different ways but also if lehi and his family leave in the first year of the reign of zedekiah Right, it, the exile doesn't necessarily have ha- have to have happened in a weekend. No, oh, that's a good point. Like, you know, it's going to take them some sure. time to go around and gather who all these people are. Well, that could have been a very important reason for them leaving as quickly as they could, right? Because right. they were starting to gather up all of these people and exile them. I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it. I hadn't thought of that. Well, and also why they're not taking any of their stuff with them like why is nephi so Hmm. willing to give away his father's riches well because it makes them targets right if if they are a wealthy family and they're trying to flee you know now you're there's a giant target on your back but if you look like a just a regular family you don't have a lot of gold you don't have a lot of stuff and you're just leaving okay sure you don't want to be part of babylon go right ahead get out of here and people leave you alone right yeah yeah that's an interesting point but but another part of this, too, is when we talk about the sons of Zedekiah, right? Mm-hmm. So Zedekiah is, is essentially tortured and watches his sons get killed and then has his own eyes gouged out in, in response to whatever rebellion he engaged in. But in the Book of Mormon text, one of these sons escapes. Yeah. And would would the biblical record reflect that even if they had known? Or is there a way that they could have known and allowed that? to continue on in their record. Hmm. Right. So so it's one of those things where there is a slight discrepancy, but if I'm one of the record keepers, is that something that is is valuable for me to write down? Is it even known? Could I know? You know, it, it's like watching a TV show and in, in the final episode of one season, a major character is killed off and then 
cliffhanger, wouldn't you know it? They come back in the next yeah. season. <laughs> That's right. right? Yeah. They, but they wouldn't have known that, right? Because because yeah. the writers hadn't didn't have access to the source material for that yet. So yeah. like there's a lot of things that are kind of pointed out. Oh, that's a discrepancy between this record and the Book of Mormon. But you know me, I'm certainly not any kind of professional apologist. But you know, there's there's very easy answers and explanations for some of this stuff. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and we we have avoided certain types of apologetics. What what our goal here is just to try to create a context and a, a ground in which some discussion and thought and connections can be made. We're you know we we're not making you know authoritative or apologetic claims here. You know you mentioned in the Book of Mormon, you know one of these sons of Zedekiah survives. Well, his name is Mulek, which the root of that is King Malek. You know Malek. And right. so it's it's just a form of that king. It could mean kinged or crowned. And so then we get the Mulekites from that, right? In in Zarahemla, which really in the root of that word would be like the kingmen, right? And so then oh, in the yeah. Book of Mormon, we have what are called kingmen, whereas like that's really what the word Mulekites probably means in and of itself. And so what I think is interesting here is that when in the Book of Mormon narrative, when you have Mosiah come to Zarahemla... And then those people join. Then it says that only from then on are descendants of Nephi made kings, right? None of the descendants <laughs> right. of Zarahemla, which just seems so odd to me. Like, right? Like, so Nephi's got the sword and obviously Mosiah's got the sword of Laban. And so that's, you know, we talked and about the how that's like the claim and the records. So that's kind of their claim to authority, right? right. But then you can see these, these hundreds of years of, of history. And then, so Mosiah comes, Mosiah the second, he uh, decides, hey guys, let's, let's not do this monarchy thing anymore. Let's go to the judges. And then what happens when you first get a judge? You get these people that rise up, these Amlicites, and he wants to be a king. Well, like, I mean, this just seems too convenient to me for him to not have been part of this tradition of Mulekites that said, hey, we are descendants of Zedekiah. We have the right to the kingship, right? Why would they go join up with the Lamanites? The Lamanites have the same claim. Nephi stole the kingship from us, right? Like right. we're the ones right. that are supposed to to rule. And so this seems to be a key point of contention among the Nephites. And it's like, to me, conspicuously ignored in some ways in the text. Like it's brought out, but it's not like actually discussed that, hey, these people have what they consider to be a legitimate grievance here, right? Like they're not just, <laughs> they feel like they really do legitimately have a right to the throne because of their their ancestry. This is a thing, right? This is a real thing in ancient mindset. Then moving on with king men throughout the rest of the narrative is is a really important thing to view. And it's kind of ironic that you know Laman and Lemuel have this claim to the the Lamanites anyway. So Laman clearly claims that he should be the king because he's got this older oldest brother. You know, that takes us back to the patrilineal hierarchies, going from father to oldest son. You know, this is the the tradition of the firstborn. Both of these are ways through which various monarchies are known to pass, and now both of them are are laying claim. Hey, we we should have a king, and it should be you know me or someone from my family. Yeah, and that's despite the fact that in the Old Testament record, there's the stated tradition that's the oldest son, but then we constantly, over and over again, right. have it not be right. the oldest son. It's always the youngest one, right? And so yeah. that's why it's interesting that it ends up being Nephi, right? Because he's the youngest, or not the youngest. He's youngest at the time they leave. You've got right. 
obviously Jacob and Joseph, but you know, he's the youngest of, of those four sons and he's the one that becomes the leader. But that's the constant motif that we have throughout the Old Testament though of, oh, it's supposed to pass to the oldest, but there's some reason, right, that it doesn't do that and it goes to a younger son. So, but but it almost reinforces like the reason why we have to have these various claims or or authentications of power that all go along with Nephi. How Nephi kind of follows in the Davidic tradition. How Nephi is the one who gets the records mm-hmm. successfully. All of these other things that culturally say no, Nephi is the heir. Nephi yeah. should be the the leader. He has to legitimize himself because right. of all these other things that would be counter to that claim. The, that when you just look at through the lens of our modern time, they don't make sense. But when you look at it through the lens of these historical cultures, ah, now we understand why those stories are so critical, so important. Yeah. So one of the last things I want to bring up is towards the end of, of chapter 25, we get this little narrative story of these these people that are left behind and the Assyrians establish a governor over them. It's not considered a king anymore, right? Verse 25 and 26 of chapter 25. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, came with 10 men. They struck down Gedaliah. I should have practiced these names. That's right. <laughs> Gedaliah, so that he died along with the Judeans and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, high and low, And the captains of the forces set out and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Okay, so this is a small group of rebels. They kill the governor and they flee to Egypt. That's kind of Nephi, right? Like that's very similar to the story of Nephi going on here. This is also in a sense like an undoing of Israelite history because they're going back into Egypt. Like they came out of Egypt, right? And now they're going back. And it's possible that one of the reasons this was included in the narrative is to demonstrate or to portray these people that have gone into Egypt as a betrayal of those who went into exile. When we get Mm. into Ezra and Nehemiah, what we have is sort of a, a view and a mindset that those that are returning from exile to the land you know, because Cyrus the Great says, hey, go back and build your temple. So those are returning. They kind of viewed themselves as superior or more faithful in some ways. And so the people that either remained behind or went into exile somewhere else, they are kind of looked down on a little bit. And so it's possible that this was included in the narrative to show how they they were going the wrong way, right? Like, I'm not (laughs) sure. Maybe it's not meant in that way. In, In any case, this community that flees to Egypt, I believe this includes Jeremiah. And we get more of this story in the book of Jeremiah. So we'll We'll talk about it when we get there. Jeremiah goes to Egypt and the community there thrives more or less in Egypt. And if I'm not mistaken, they become the principal ancestors of those that end up under Greek rule, you know, because Alexander the Great comes and he he takes over everything in, in the fourth century, like 320 BC. And that Jewish community, Hebrew community stays in Egypt and they, they live there for, for hundreds of years. And they are the ones that complete the Septuagint translation of the the Bible from the Hebrew into Greek, which is the oldest text that we have of the Bible. The oldest text we have isn't Hebrew, it's it's Greek. Now we right, do have the Dead right. Sea Scrolls, which are really useful and stuff, but but anyway, that that's an important point because this community that goes into Egypt, I believe, are the ancestors of those that complete the Septuagint translation. So this is a total sidestep, but I've I have been in conversations with people before where they told me that the Book of Mormon was not a record 
of the people of the American continent, but it was a record of the people of the the Western Cape of Africa, what is now Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, all up and down that western or eastern coast, sorry. And that this is evidence of that, this that this story. Look, you've got all the people and they fled here through Egypt. Of course they're gonna go down through the western or the eastern I had side not of Africa. heard that. Or maybe I had heard something, but I'd never connected it to this scenario. Yeah. But but for me, it's more of a, we have this community and we have some of their records. Imagine all the records and all of the things that happened that we don't have record of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I get huh. so excited when I, when I hear about things like this. I know it's a little premature to talk about this. But I just want to touch on the idea, because we're talking about the scattering, we're talking about the dispersion of Israel, this idea that we see over and over and over again, that this is not the end, right? This is a foreshadowing of a gathering. And these are major themes throughout the rest of the scriptures, throughout the, especially the epistles of the, the early apostles, throughout the Book of Mormon, throughout our modern scripture and the Doctrine and Covenants, this idea of the gathering of Israel. And there's so many other places where this pattern of here's a thing that is formed, now it's broken up and scattered, and it's going to be gathered up again. It's going to be brought back together. And it's going to be better when it's brought back together. It's like alchemical, right? right? Oh, uh, I didn't even touch on my alchemical Mm -hmm. references to this one. Jacob chapter five is the the allegory of the olive tree yeah, too, right? Yeah. Oh, and it's it's this whole thing. I learned something super cool while doing sacrament meeting at home with my family throughout the this pandemic, is that in early LDS church sacrament meetings, we used a communal wine cup. And it was only during the Spanish flu pandemic that we went to the little individual hmm. paper cups. And I learned this as I'm doing you know as i'm sharing this the sacrament with my family we're not doing individual cups we're sharing a communal cup with my family and boom like this hit me like a bolt of lightning that as we're breaking up the bread as the body of christ and spreading it around and dispersing it through the the people through the, the congregation that now as we share the communal cup and we all partake of the blood of Christ again, we are made whole through that. We are made one, both as an individual, made whole through the blood of Christ, but also as a congregation, we are made whole again through the blood of Christ. We are made, you know, we become the body of Christ as the church. So like we see the symbolism all over the place in our tradition, and it's all pointing us towards Not necessarily just this gathering of Israel, but I think the gathering of Israel ultimately is pointing us to a final, eternal restoration of these things that is designed to help us look towards heaven. Symbols of symbols of symbols. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this happens a lot to me. When you, you finally think you see the thing that something is pointing at, you see that that thing is pointing at something else. (laughs) (laughs) And so you keep following, right? When you see the symbol, we put it in one context and we go, oh, this is an important lesson. But we miss that same symbol in various other contexts, right? Yeah. And so I think one thing where I've really learned a lot from you and from Christopher during this podcast is in connecting some of these symbols, connecting 
all the various forms of temple texts that are early in the Bible, the symbolism of water as it goes through all the way through the, the story of Exodus and how that relates to our modern baptism. And to me, this idea of exile and or rather the the scattering the the scattering of Israel it is this opportunity for hope it's this opportunity for restoration and again like this takes me back to what we talked about earlier lord who sinned this man or his parents that that Israel was scattered right to to mix metaphors here hmm. and and the lord says it doesn't have to be that Maybe it just happened so you could see the power of God in your life. Observe, right? Yeah. It creates this opportunity for you to go, wow, look at the mag- mastery and, and majesty that is the gathering of Israel that's happening all around me right now. Maybe that's why it had to happen. That's a great point, Tom. Let's end with that. I like that. Well, thanks. All right. Well, we'll sign off. I, I sure appreciate you being here with me, Tom, to do this discussion. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Tom Bogle. Thanks. Thanks.